on December the 10th, 1936, the British people were stunned to learn the news that their king, Edward VIII, had abdicated the throne, handing over the responsibility to his brother, the Duke of York. In a radio broadcast to the nation the next day, he explained the reason for his decision. This is what he said. You must believe me when I tell you I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as a king as I would have wished to without the help and support of the woman I love. And I want you to know that the decision I've made has been mine and mine alone. This was a thing I had to judge entirely for myself. I have made this the most serious decision of my life only upon the single thought of what would, in the end, be best for all. It was, and it remains, one of the most controversial events in 20th century British history. With opinions divided on whether he made the right decision and whether indeed it was best for all, influenced in no small measure by questions regarding his alleged pro-Nazi sympathies and the chequered history of the woman in question, the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Nonetheless, whatever we may think, the bottom line is that the king abandoned his throne and all the privileges that went with it for the woman he loved. He weighed up the options and made his choice and married Mrs. Simpson. The rest, as they say, is history. Whether he ever had any regrets, we will never know, although their marriage was only broken by his death in Paris in 1972. Almost 2,000 years ago, another young man made a momentous choice. He wasn't a king, but he did possess a formidable pedigree. A Roman citizen by right, a Jewish aristocrat by birth, and a brilliant academic by training, a glittering career lay ahead of him. But one day, he abandoned it all for love. His Hebrew name was Saul but he's better known by his Greek name, Paul. And the person for whom he gave up everything was not a woman, but a man. And no ordinary man. A man he discovered in a decisive encounter on a road to Damascus in Syria, a man who was and is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just take the picture off of you on Move forward 25 years since that life-changing encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Years marked by incredible hardship and privation, hunger and thirst, beatings and stonings by angry mobs, constant travel in all conditions, and criticism and even betrayal by his supposed colleagues. Now this man Paul is imprisoned once more, this time in Rome, on trial for his life because of his alleged 
allegiance to Jesus Christ. So the question is now, does he have any regrets about the decision he made all those years ago? And to find out, we turn to this letter that he wrote from prison in Rome to the followers of Jesus in the Greek city of Philippi. We've been studying it together this year under the title, Shining Like Stars. So look again at the section that was read for us before. Using language borrowed from accountancy, Paul calculates the debits and credits in his decision. The profit and loss in following Christ. In Philippians 3, 7 to 11. You'll find it in the few Bibles on page 1180. Now notice in these verses, he gives his considered judgment on the matter. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now notice the little word highlighted there, the word consider. It relates to careful and thoughtful judgment based on facts rather than on an emotional spur of the moment decision. Perhaps Paul might have been accused of that kind of decision because of the nature of his encounter with Jesus. You remember the story, the blinding light that struck him to the ground, the voice from heaven. But if you look more closely at these verses, you'll see this is not the case. And we see this in the different tenses of the verbs used here. Just stay with me a moment for a little bit of grammar, alright? In verse 7, what's called the perfect tense, literally he says, I have considered... This is my settled conviction. But when he comes to verse 8, it changes to the present tense. I continue to consider. In other words, I've not changed my mind on this. And as you read on, you discover that rather than having any doubt, he is even more certain than he has ever been that the choice he made was the best choice he could ever have made in his life. As he looks at all the things that he once counted as profit, but now sees as lost compared to what he gained. So, let's just look at those two aspects together this morning. And as we do so, I'd really like us to examine the accounts of our own lives. What are we living for? What choices have we made? Do we regret them? Do we stand by them? If you're a Christian, do you regret following Jesus? Or you might not say it in Charlotte Chapel. Life's been tough been worthwhile? Or if you're not a Christian, maybe you've heard the Christian message and you said to yourself, that's not for me. And the years have gone by, or the months maybe. Did you make the right choice? Are you having any regrets? So look with me first of all at what Paul calls his loss. And simply he says he's lost all things. Look again at the beginning of verse 7. If I translate it literally, if you look at it in front of you, he literally says, but these things that were to my profit, these things that were to me profit, plural, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What are these things that Paul, as it were, in, in the profit 
column of his life put there and said, these are pluses in my life. What are the things that we looked at last week? They're the things listed in verses 5 and 6. And they're all to do with his religious background. His religious pedigree. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, Pharisee. He's referring to his religious zeal. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. He's talking about his religious performance. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And this may not be all. For having described these as all these things, as lost, he then goes on in verse 8 to say, he has lost all things. Many people believe he's adding to those things all the other privileges of his life. His social standing, his family wealth, his academic achievements. All these things, Paul says, I once thought were pluses in my life. Prophets, the word is plural, but now in his considered judgment, he lumps them all together and the word lost is a singular. He says, all these prophets, I just lump them together and they're a dead loss. They're now considered lost. Now, it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here and also what he is not saying. He is not saying that his Jewish background, his religion, his social standings, his achievements, before he became a Christian, were worthless, full stop. That's not what he means. The word lost here is a very interesting word. It's only found in this chapter twice, and it's found twice in one other chapter in the New Testament, which gives you a kind of illustration of what he's talking about. It occurs twice in the book of Acts, right near the end in chapter 27. You know the Bible. This is the story of how Paul actually got to Rome by ship, or more precisely by shipwreck. They were on the last leg of the journey across the Mediterranean in late autumn. It was a dangerous time for sea travel. Normally travel stopped at a certain date because of the risks to travellers. And Paul warns the centurion who's taking him and these other prisoners to Rome that it's not a good idea to set out. They should stay there for the winter and then proceed to Rome. This is what he says before they set out. He says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and our own lives also. However, the pilot and the owner of the cargo and the captain are anxious to get to Rome to land their valuable cargo, not just the prisoners. They have a big load of wheat that they're carrying to Rome to sell. And so Paul's advice is disregarded. But it proved only too correct for a violent hurricane-powered wind came up and smashed into the ship so that it was driven across the Mediterranean. It was so terrible that in order to lighten the load and try and save their lives, they threw everything overboard. We read they threw the ship's tackle and the cargo into the sea. Everyone feared the worst. Everyone thought that was it, they were going to die. But Paul stood up, we read, and reassured them. This is what he said. Uh, couldn't resist the first sentence probably. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell to Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you, keep up your courage. 
because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Now, notice the two words lost there. It's the same word in Philippians 3. You see what he's saying? He said, all those things that you once regarded as profit, like the wheat you were going to sell in Rome, compared with saving your lives, is actually lost. And in fact, to save your lives, you need to jettison all those things and throw them into the sea to lighten the load in order to save yourselves. And in fact, the whole ship is lost in the end, but their lives are saved. Now, back to Philippians 3. Paul is not saying that he now considers everything in his background to be rubbish before he met Christ, that it was all a complete loss. Full stop. Rather, he's saying all those things in his background and life before he met Christ was lost in regards to what he calls here righteousness. The technical word, it means being in a right relationship with God. You see, Paul used to think that his religious zeal, his pedigree, his religious observance, let alone his status, his wealth, his academic achievements, were things which were in the prophet's column of his life in the account he had in the bank of heaven. He thought to himself, when God looks at my life and my account in the bank of heaven, all these things are prophets. But one day he discovered, to use an illustration from Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on Philippians, one day he had a terrible awakening. Because he discovered that all these things he was paying into his account that he thought were checks in his credit were actually debits. Imagine that, you've been paying checks in, you know, week after week and one day the bank manager rings you up and says please come in I need to talk to you about your account and he's saying what's the problem you're in the red for thousands of pounds and you say but I've paid all these checks and he says I'm sorry they weren't credit checks they were debits it never happens to you on me and they were debits of Paul because Paul thought he was paying these into his bank account in heaven and they were all to his credit but he discovered that they were actually to his debits because they gave him a false sense of security now let me pause and ask you a question, a personal question. What's the state of your bank account in heaven? Are you in the red or are you in the black? What are the things that you have done that you think will earn you credit with God? Your good deeds? Your religious observance? Your family background? Have you ever stood before the divine bank manager and been given the terrible news that what you thought was your healthy bank account with God is actually you are in the red, deeply in the red. And all those things you were putting into the bank account that you thought would gain you credit with God are actually debits in terms of putting you in a right relationship with God. Now surely, if this was true of a man like Paul, who could claim the best of moral behaviour, who could say, as for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. This was true of him. How much more true of me and you in trying to gain favour with God by our own efforts and standing. But that is not all, you'll be glad to know. It's not just a matter of realising that nothing we can do can ever cancel our debts and put us right with God. While true, that would lead us to despair the despair of being told by the bank manager you're so deeply in the red there is no way in eternity you will ever be able to pay these debts off 
But to continue the illustration, if I may push it a little further. Having given us the bad news, the bank manager gives us the good news. What Christians call the gospel. He says, I've made a way by which your account can be put right. By which you can be put right with me. With what he calls a righteousness from God. God's way of putting people right, not my way. We'll come back to it in a moment. And how is that made available? It is made available through a personal relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, who has made it possible. And for Paul, that bombshell occurred on the road to Damascus when he heard a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus. And that was the beginning of this wonderful experience. So in comparison with all that, he says, all those things I once considered in my prophet's column, they're just a dead loss. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So now we turn to the good news from the loss to the gain. Right, the gain, which is knowing Christ. You see, in that momentous, life-changing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, a radical re-evaluation of Paul's life took place. He goes on to say, I consider all those things rubbish that I may gain Christ. In comparison with what he gained, Christ, all the other things, he says, are rubbish. It's a very crude word in Greek. It's literally excrement. If you know the authorised version, it translates it as dung. D-U-N-G. However, it may be derived from two other words which means scraps of food that you throw out in the street for the dogs. That is the case. It may be a back reference to what we looked at last week when Paul talks about watching out for dogs, people who feed on this kind of thing, which is in fact rubbish. For Paul, there is no comparison between feeding on such rubbish and gaining Christ, knowing Christ, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is all about knowing Christ personally. Now you sometimes hear someone, have you heard these radio programs where you ring up and tell how you met a famous person? You know, I was just in Sainsbury's doing my shopping and then who should pop out from there but Prince Charles? Well, okay. And I said, hello your majesty, and he said, hello. You know? And every time you meet them they tell you this wonderful story and you hear it repeated ad infinitum and ad nauseum. Now, there are some Christians, sadly, like that. Ask them to share their Christian story and all they tell you is their life BC before Christ. And the day they met him, perhaps years and years ago. And that's the end of the story, you know. But not so Paul. The road to Damascus, he said, that was just the first meeting. That was a handshake. It's like Prince Charles saying, I'm so pleased to meet you. How would you like to come and stay with me and get to know me better? But Jesus Christ meets us personally. And life then takes on a new adventure to get to know him better. And Paul talks about this in these verses, about the past, about the present. He even looks to the future and says, I'm looking forward to the final day when I'll know Christ perfectly and completely. A deepening relationship with Jesus. Now this is found in 
in the, these three successive verses, 9, 10, 11. Alright, just look at them with me. Our time is going, but let's, let's try and focus on them. There are three theological words that go with it. If you don't understand the theological words, don't worry, but I'm going to put them in and try and explain them. The first thing he talks about is being found in Christ. Now, the theological term for that is justification. It means being put right with God. As we've seen, Paul's goal in life was a devout Pharisee, the strictest religious group in Judaism, was to be in a right relationship with God. And he thought he could achieve this by his own efforts, by keeping God's law. But when the risen Jesus met him, his whole system was turned upside down. He realised he could never be in a right standing with God. But then he realised something even more wonderful, that what he could never achieve, God had achieved himself for him through sending his son Jesus to pay the debt he could never pay. And God declared this to be so by raising Jesus from the dead. You see, Paul thought when he was on that road to Damascus, on the way to persecute more followers of Jesus, that they were misguided heretics who were worshipping, of all things, a crucified criminal. But he discovered to his amazement that this one who was crucified is alive. He's Lord of all. The Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, instead of relying on my own righteousness, look at the verses, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he's now relying on a different way of righteousness of being put right with God. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, the word faith in Christ may mean faithfulness of Christ there. That Christ faithfully fulfilled what he was doing when he died on the cross. Because verse 9 reminds us that this new status of before God is received simply as a gift by faith. And on the day when Paul encountered the risen Jesus, his status before God changed. He was now found in Christ. An interesting phrase, isn't it? People often talk about someone finding God. But here the emphasis is that God found Paul. He wasn't looking for Jesus. God broke into his life. It is, let me come back to my original illustration again. And don't push every detail to the limit, but it is a good illustration of what it's like. It's as though the bank account manager examines my bank account and seeing that I'm deeply in debt and there's no way I could ever pay off the debt, he says, I've got a, su- I've got a suggestion, a solution for you. How about if you transfer your account under my account in Jesus Christ? You can subsume it all under that account. And here's the, here's the auditor. He comes to the bank account of heaven, if you can imagine this. And he says, I want to look at Peter Granger's bank account. You know, that guy is so deeply in the red, he's never going to get out. And he searches. Can't find my name anywhere. The account seems to be missing. And he goes to God and God says, Look for him under Jesus Christ. Look in his account. You'll find people think you're there. Found in Christ. Such a wonderful thought, isn't it? Just amazing. And Paul says, that's my goal on the day of judgment. When the divine audit is made, I want to be found in Christ. 
Don't look in the soul of Tarsus. Otherwise I'm condemned. Look into Jesus Christ. His merit. It's what you need as a Christian. Day by day. You know why? Because Christians have an enemy. It's called Satan. He's the accuser of God's people. And he says, what are you doing in Charlotte Chapel this morning, Mom? What you did last week? They only knew about it. Wow. You've no right to be here. In a minute, we're going to sing that lovely hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt of it, what would I not? See him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my guilty soul is counted free. Why? For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. Now, only two things will stop you from being found in Christ now and on the day of judgment. One is a refusal to admit that you're in debt and that your own efforts can never put you in the black. To think, I'll be alright, I'm as good as most people. God marks on a curve, I'm definitely in the top half. No, God marks on perfection. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the first thing we'll start with. The second thing is pride. A refusal to accept God's gracious gifts in Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Now that's what the Bible calls justification. And it comes through knowing Christ. So that American said so wonderfully, you know it! Listen, he was excited. Okay, maybe a different cultural background. You know him. Now that's not all. Paul moves on to the second aspect in verse 10. What, what we call sanctification, which means becoming like Christ. When you get to know Christ, you spend time with him and you become more like him. That's the whole goal. That, have you ever thought of the reason why why isn't it that when a person makes a commitment to Christ, let's suppose in God's grace this morning, someone here this morning receives Christ when he's found in Christ, why is it that God doesn't, you know, do a star trek, you know, beam me up immediately into heaven? You know? Well, because there's work to do in your life. He's got a project, and his project is to make you like Christ. But what he says, his present ambition, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. The word translated becoming like is a lovely word. It means sharing the shape. Sharing the shape of someone or something. If you want to become like Jesus, it means sharing his shape of ministry. It means your life being moulded and shaped so that you're more like Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what shape is Christ, if I can put it in those terms? Well, the hymn we looked at in chapter 2 tells us, in fact, it uses the same language. I don't have time to go into all the details of it, but look what it says about Jesus in there, Philippians 2, verse 6. It says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider, there's the same word again, he made a considered choice, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature, the shape of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The shape of Christ is the shape of the cross. So if you want to be like Jesus, 
your life will become more and more cross-shaped. And if you want to know Christ more deeply and intimately, then you will only do it as you share in his suffering. That's very interesting, isn't it? The order that he puts the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Why this order? Simply a person comments. We would normally expect the opposite order, death first, then resurrection. But Paul leads us to a central element in Christian experience. It is as we live in Christ our risen Saviour that he leads us on to the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. If you want to live life in the power of the Spirit, let's talk about this in churches these days, we want to live powerful spiritual life. Yes, we do. If you do, it will inevitably lead you to suffering. Very interesting. When Paul and Barnabas undertook their first missionary journey in the book of Acts 13 and 14, they went around and established all these churches. Then they retraced their route back again and did what we would call follow-up. They undoubtedly taught them all sorts of things. Luke only records one, one lesson that they taught them from their follow-up classes. And it's not one that we would put in ours. Right, thank you. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And somehow in the West, because of our positive experience, we've grown to think the suffering church, those are those abnormal Christians that suffer for Christ. We're the normal ones who have it relatively easy. Not so, we're the abnormal ones. And the question is whether our lack of suffering is due to our lack of power. Say it again. Maybe our lack of suffering is due to our lack of spirit-filled power because it leads to the cross. And it's true, is it not, in human experience, that if you suffer together, if you have some great crisis as a family, does it not draw you closer together? Does it not unite you, get to know one another in a much deeper way? So it is with Christ. Now, if that were only all that there is, it would not be a final happy ending. But there is a happy ending. For Paul and every Christian. For he moves on finally to what we call glorification. Being raised with Christ. It's one long sentence in the original from verse 8 right through to the end of verse 11. And he looks at his future hope. And he says, And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Some people get worried by the word somehow. It sounds like Paul's not really sure he's going to make it. Well, that's incomprehensible in view of all the assurances he's given here and elsewhere. What the word somehow means is by what route? He says, the route, somehow, I'm going to get there to the resurrection. I'm not sure how it will happen. I might be martyred, found guilty before Caesar. And then I'll get to the resurrection of the dead. Or, my life may go on for some time. Or, Christ might return again, and those who are still alive will be caused it to be a Christ in the air, as he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The route is unclear, but the destination is certain. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, Given a new resurrection body, we don't have time to read it in 1 Corinthians 15, so if we are in Christ, in relationship with Him, we will finally be with Him forever with new resurrection bodies raised from the dead. These bodies, you'll be glad to know, will never wear out, they'll never suffer from decay or death, and they'll never be touched by suffering and sin. 
then we shall know Christ perfectly. We shall love Him completely. And the relationship that began on earth is finally, eternally, I was going to say completed, just completed in heaven, as the man said, forever and ever and ever and ever. And what a wonderful hope. Now, Gordon B. Thomas, to know Christ in the present means to be conformed to his death so that all through the Christian life is stamped with the divine imprint of the cross as we live out the gospel in the present age and await the hope of the resurrection. Almost finished, but I want to say one final thing in conclusion. I was a little concerned about using big theological words like justification, sanctification, glorification. They're biblical words. But the great danger is that we think knowing Christ is knowing facts about Christ. Or facts about the Bible. Or theological terms. But while knowing truth is vital, it must never be divorced from knowing Christ and experience. Again, Gordon C. Cummins, great scholar he is, and also Pentecostal. Knowing Christ does not mean to have head knowledge about him, but to know him personally and relationally. I've read this book of Philippians many, many times. As I've studied this week, I learned something that I'd never noticed before. Fifty-one times in all his letters, Paul talks about Jesus, our Lord expressing the idea of course that all Christians have the same Lord that we belong together in Christ but here in Philippians 3 verse 8 is the only time that he uses the singular the surpassing greatness the matchless worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord very interesting isn't it I think of Paul as some great theologian missionary statesman all these things but at the bottom line he was a man in Christ who knew Christ personally. My Lord. My question to you is is it your personal experience? Is it my personal experience? See, unless it is, you'll never understand how you could abandon all these things like Paul for the sake of knowing Christ. Because you've never fallen in love with Christ. Let me say it again. He could never really fall in love with Christ. He could put it out. But do you know him? Do you love him? Can you say with Paul, the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me? Oh, you, you, you may know all the facts. You may have done the courses. You may have come to Charlotte Chapel. You may know what it's all about, but you don't have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you've never put aside all those other things and said, they don't count. Comparison with David Christ, being found in him, knowing him, coming like him, and finally being with him forever. Maybe today, time is gone, but maybe a good opportunity for you to take that step of faith and take that step of faith.